ones are, they're, they're always teaching. We just need to be listening. Everything I learned about ski guiding, I learned on a snowmobile. An eight foot crown that broke within feet of where my friend was stuck. This is Travis Feist, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. That's right, you're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Happy New Year to all y'all out there. From us at the Avalanche Hour Podcast, we hope that your 2022 will be filled with stable, endless bottomless powder. And we hope that you'll take the podcast with you into 2022 as well. I know that I've been enjoying some of the latest episodes from our contributing hosts. So thank you to those hosts out there, Dom Baker and Wes Gregg, Sean Zimmerman-Wall and Matthias Valker. And we'll be hearing from Kelly McNeil here as well pretty soon. So thanks for your hard work. If you've been enjoying the show or if you have feedback for us, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, we can't do this without our partnerships with VEASAN Avalanche Control, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. Thank you for, for laying the groundwork for making this thing happen. If you've really been enjoying the show and you want to help out, there's a donate button on the website you can go to www.theavalanchehour.com and click on the donate button that'll help us out that'll help us grow this podcast even further if you have a business that you want to highlight on one of these episodes we have some single episode ad spaces available and so if you're interested in that sort of thing please reach out at that same email all right all right enough asking for your money We know why you're here. You're here to hear a great episode, and you're about to get it. Back in October, I sat down with Travis Feist. Travis is a professional observer for the Sierra Avalanche Center. He's been called the godfather of mechanized avalanche education, although he may refute that title. But he's done a lot for the mechanized snow machine world in avalanche education and uh he drops it he drops the knowledge on us and and one of the things that i really like about travis is he's he's able to really cut the fat out and just kind of get to the point and really tells it like it is without further ado here we go with travis feist hey travis how's it going today i'm doing pretty well how about you yeah not so bad thanks for Invite me into your home down in South Lake Tahoe. Here it's uh, October 9th, and um, it's good to be in Tahoe. Yeah, it's it's beautiful out there right now. Welcome back to town, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's an honor. 
Oh, absolutely. You've been on the list for a while, so glad we could make it happen here. So hoping you could introduce yourself, talk about your background, some of the roles that you've played within the snow and avalanche community and what you're up to these days, what your what your upcoming winter is going to look like. Sure. Uh, well, I got really lucky and got started in the in the snow sports industry um, really by accident. I was on a motorcycle trip with a friend, a cross-country motorcycle trip, and um, basically broke down near Lake Tahoe right when the snow was beginning to fall and actually answered a, a want ad for a ski guide position. And I can't believe that, like, thinking about it now – that just doesn't even exist, right? Like there is so many people trying to get into the industry. Um, but at that time they were actually posting classified ads. And, uh, I think I probably got the job in part because I showed up on a motorcycle in a snowstorm. And, um, the guy who hired me was just shocked that I actually even made it and probably figured if he can do that, then, then I want him on the team. Um, so I worked as a ski guide for a little while and then uh, ended up ski patrolling, probably about 15 years of ski patrolling. Um, I worked in Colorado for a bit and then here in Tahoe. Uh, and then I believe it was in 2010 that I left ski patrolling and started working for the Avalanche Center here full time. Been teaching Avalanche classes kind of towards the end of my patrolling career and then uh, have been doing that on the side the whole time working for the Avalanche Center. Nice. Yeah. That sounds like you, you wear quite a few hats in the industry or, or have at least. Where did you ski patrol? Uh, I first ski patrolled at Monarch Pass, small, but really fun resort in Colorado. Uh, it was a great place to work, a great place to cut my teeth. Um, the crew was pretty welcoming to me as a rookie. And then I went to Squaw after that. And, uh, I'm glad I wasn't a rookie there. I'm glad I had a little bit of experience. Um, that was an amazing place to work. And then my wife got a job down here in South Lake Tahoe, so I ended up working at Heavenly. All right. And then you mentioned uh, your involvement with Avalanche Education kind of ongoing this whole time. Uh, how, what was kind of your entry into teaching Avalanche courses like? Uh, well, Leltone was patrolling at Squaw at the time, and I, I'm pretty sure she was the one responsible for some awareness classes that the patrol was offering up there. Uh, so we did Friday night awareness classes. Um, I really enjoyed doing that. I had some teaching experience prior. I was working for Outward Bound in the summertime, and and I really liked it. And then uh, on a whim, honestly, I took an area instructor training class. I think it was around 2004. Um, I was really happy with ski patrolling at the time. I was doing it full time. I had no intentions of of leaving that. So I honestly, looking back, don't know why I took the instructor training class, uh, but then I ended up starting to teach a little bit part-time, did it more and more. Um, and then eventually once I got the job with the Avalanche Center, I, I just didn't have time for patrolling anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you actually taught my instructor training course through ARI, uh, which was great, just in 2014, I think. But uh, it seemed like uh, you were pretty heavily involved with ARI at that time. I was. I was for several years. Uh, I worked really closely with ARI. Um, and Ben Pritchett. Ben Pritchett was the program director and I was the training coordinator. So I was organizing a lot of the uh, instructor trainings and the level threes. Mm -hmm. Nice. I want to talk a little bit about your entry into motorized travel in the winter backcountry environment. You At, at some point, you got pretty into snowmobiling, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, 
I've always been a motorhead. Like I said, that's how I ended up in the ski industry to begin with was a broken down uh, motorcycle. Um, and so as a guide, I remember even in my, my rookie season using the work sled and um, maybe poaching some some lines I shouldn't have been, uh, even on some heavy work sled at the time. Um, as a ski patroller, same story, you know, making bomb runs on powder days. I was often a few minutes late, maybe, um, and just kind of having a good time. And then the Sierra Avalanche Center got a few mountain sleds. I think it was 2011 or 2012. And that's when I started what I would say really riding. And that's when I learned that I didn't know how to ride a snowmobile. Um, and so I quickly went out and bought my own and really dedicated a lot of time to, to learning to ride. Talk about some of the benefits of using a, a sled for forecasting for the Avalanche Center. Uh, well, we can see so much more terrain. I mean, it's just incredible. I honestly, I, I still travel on skis for work a fair amount and I feel like it's a lesser product. Um, so I can cover 20, 50 miles, so many different aspects and elevations on the sled. And even though I might only dig two or three holes in a day, uh, just the amount of, of terrain that I've seen and the snow that I've felt under the machine, um, it's just a better product that I'm, that I'm providing. Mm -hmm. So much more information. Yeah. What's the motorized scene in, in Tahoe? Like what's the access for motorized users here? You know, a lot of people think in California, there's probably not that much riding cause we have so many wilderness areas. Um, and there are definitely a lot of closures. It, I haven't really found it to be that big of a problem. I think, um, you know, once you learn the access points in the parking areas, there's a lot of really good riding around here. Uh, but it's it's unfortunately a little bit contentious right now. Um, there's uh, some problems with skier versus snowmobiler, uh, and it's unfortunate. You know, we're all in the same community, but but it is happening. Mm. And, and why is that? What do you, what do you see as kind of the major issue there? Uh, you know, as a longtime skier, I've never had problems with it. So I first started backcountry skiing in the Tahoe area in '93. And it was something I never even considered. I, it's just never been a problem um, to, to avoid snowmobilers. Uh, I think that there's just something weird in the ski industry and in the ski culture where it's kind of considered, it, it's acceptable, it's considered the norm. When somebody takes on backcountry skiing, they just assume that they need to be anti-snowmobile. Um, and there are just a few, that I think it's the vocal minority I think they, they, they make their own little sport of seeking out conflict with snowmobilers and then, um, and, you know, recording the, the conversations, the arguments, turning that into the forest service, that kind of thing. And, it, and it's really just people who can't have fun backcountry skiing and they need to make something else of it. That's, and that's maybe a kind of negative way to look at it, but that's, that's my interpretation. I think the vast majority of backcountry skiers don't really care they find their own way around. Um, and it's just not a problem. Right. Unfortunately, it seems to lend itself to other, other, uh, facets of life as yeah, well. People yeah. just want to find conflict where, where they can. Yeah. I was just reading about somebody putting, um, spikes on a, on a local mountain bike trail. Mm, that's too bad. Well, Travis, uh, you know, Matt from the mountain riding lab in a, in a previous episode of the avalanche hour called you the godfather of <laughs> motorized avalanche education. Would you, would you like to claim that or refute no, that? No, no, I'll refute that. I heard him say that. And, uh, I can't take credit for that. That was honestly, um, 
I was working with other people at the time that uh, that I became aware there was a need and and it was really um, outside forces pushing. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to do something about it. So um, Brandon Schwartz, the lead forecaster at the Avalanche Center here, uh, introduced me to Duncan Lee and encouraged us to start teaching classes. Um, so we started teaching kind of awareness plus intro type classes. They were uh, day and a half classes. Um, and then Brian Lundstedt, who uh, started Tyler's Backcountry Awareness, was really pushing Airy hard to start doing motorized specific things. Um, he took his classes on on snowshoes and um, recognized that it wasn't appropriate. I definitely had snowmobilers in some of my human-powered classes over the years. And so I was aware that, that was, this was something that probably needed to be done. Um, but it wasn't until Brandon and, and uh, Brian contacted me and, and said, hey, this is something we need to start doing. Well, and let's talk a little bit about maybe the differences of, of planning for a day of, of snowmobiling versus backcountry skiing, right? Like, what are some main differences in how you approach planning for a day in the backcountry on your sled? And like, and how might you approach the terrain a little bit differently? Yeah, I think that there's a pretty important distinction there, and that's that uh, backcountry skiing tends to be very linear and binary. So when I go backcountry skiing, um, I make plans with friends to go ski a very distinct route or distinct feature. So typically there's already an established skin track, or if we're the first ones there, we're trying to follow what we are aware of as the standard skin track. And then there's kind of a binary decision, yes or no, are we going to descend this? Um, and so sometimes there might be a little bit of exposure along the skin track, and so that you have to make minor decisions along the way. But it's just generally linear. We all fall in line with each other, follow the same route, both up and down. Um, and snowmobiling is, is non-linear. I've recorded my GPS tracks um, and looked at them. Usually it's by mistake, right? Like my phone just does it and I don't realize it. And then I look back at it at the end of the day and it looks like total chaos, um, like spaghetti squiggles all over the place. And that's just me. I've got three or four partners and they're all doing the same thing and they're not following me in, in my track. We're all just kind of doing our own thing. So it's, it's really non-linear. Um, and so from a planning perspective, we're looking more at the drainage scale. We're talking about linking a variety of different drainages. Um, and we're often trying to find new routes. We're not, we're not just trying to go back to the established route. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think margins are even more important. Safety margins are much more important for snowmobilers. Um, and it's something I've really learned to apply to my skiing as well. But, uh, you know, it's, it's more important for snowmobilers to decide where they're not going to go than exactly where they are going to go. So you might just take uh, certain terrain features on certain aspects kind of off the table for the day. Right. In, right. In your, in your pre-trip plan. Right? Yeah. 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 So, you know, pretty often we will have already agreed on a, on a trailhead. Um, and then from there in the parking lot, we'll, we'll talk about the, the forecast and, and who we're traveling with for that day and then decide, okay, let's consider these drainages. We'll, we'll you know, go to this zone and that zone and that zone. But we got to remember when we're in this one particular place, let's avoid the complex shady stuff or let's avoid the steep sunnies, whatever it is for that day. Um, 
And then what that does is it leaves everything else open. And so we can make decisions on the fly because we've already agreed to what we're going to close. Right. Okay. So taking this kind of model and, and what's important to talk about um, before you go riding, how does how did that overlay into a, a motorized curriculum for avalanche education? And, and maybe talk about some of the key differences between a non-motorized curriculum versus the motorized curriculum. Sure. You know, I think that... Uh, because we need to look at a lot more terrain, because we need to be more concerned about margins, um, the the emphasis needs to be more on our procedures on a snowmobile. It's not, uh, again, it's not just a singular binary decision. It's just a, a series of, of decisions that go on throughout the day. And so um, by setting up a procedure for the day in advance, that's pretty simple, easy to follow. It's it's honestly something that um, that savvy snowmobilers do intuitively. Um, and actually, I learned a lot of it from from talking to some of the professional guides, Dan Adams, uh, Matt Anst, Brett Rasmussen, kind of the the pillars of the industry. Um, they all agreed that they were following similar procedures. So. You know, the old human-powered curriculum was based on the avalanche triangle. Even the airy version of it, the decision-making framework, was basically the avalanche triangle warmed over, right? Um, It's still about terrain, people, and conditions. Um, But just understanding, you know, the the technicality of of digging a pit or or how certain grains change in the snowpack, that kind of thing over time, um, that... I'm not really sure how that leads to good decision-making in the field, but I don't think it matters as much or that problem matters as much when it's human powered because things are slow, things are linear, things are binary. Um, but some of the chaos that can be introduced on a 150 po- or 150 horsepower snowmobile with four other riders, um, you're not making eye contact with each other. You're not just huffing and puffing in the skin track discussing things. Uh, it, it needs to be very procedural. Would you say it's easier to make more impulsive decisions on your sled or your skis? Yeah, uh, no doubt it's on the sled, right? Um, in the skin track, I'm never worried about one of my partners suddenly darting 200 yards off to the side. Like, that's just not something a skier does. On the descent, possibly there's little features to jib off of and that kind of thing, and those might be... Um, those might be trigger points or some other place to avoid, but it's it's still just so linear and slow compared to on a on a snowmobile where it's just instant poof the whole crew can disappear, um, and so you do need to the the group management component that's a big part of the process is is number one uh, looking at um, accident reports for snowmobilers it's so often because there was a little bit of chaos introduced to the day. Uh, no, no real procedure, no distinct leader, or the leader might just be the best rider or the one with the fastest sled or whatever it is, and everybody's just trying to keep up for the day. Um, yeah, so, th- so those, that can happen very quickly. So what are some, what are some tenets to kind of combat that and you know, good practices out there? I think the most important thing is just to stop and talk every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just so easy to introduce that to a riding crew. Enter a zone, but stop to talk before you go hit it. So we'll go up and over a pass into the next little play area. And um, it, it just takes 45 seconds to look at stuff and say, remember, we, we agreed to avoid complex, shady terrain. We're not going to go over there. 
go hit everything else and I'll see you on the other side in 20 minutes. All right. So kind of pre-identified meeting points. Yeah. 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 Right. And I've done a little bit of snowmobiling and, and really enjoy it and hope to get better at it. But, um, you know, I, I don't have extensive experience, but on my skis, I can, I can feel a collapse if there's a collapse of a persistent weak layer deeper in the snowpack. And I can kind of hear that whoomph of the snowpack. Um, can you hear that on a sled? Um, if your motor's running, I don't know if you'll hear it, but you can definitely feel it. Yeah. If, if it's a, if it's a real collapse, you know, if the snowpack drops an inch or two, um, you'll feel it. And then it's interesting. I, I mean, I'm sure I've collapsed the, the snowpack and not felt it, not heard it. But so many times when I've turned off my motor and I'm waiting for my partners to approach, as soon as they get close to me, that's when I can hear and feel it. Um, and so I, I do think that as your riding gets better, you you do learn to feel what's going on in the snowpack. At first, it might feel really muted and, and difficult to get that same kind of sensitivity as you do on skis. Um, but I think that's made up for with the amount of terrain we cover. Like it's made up for with how easy it is to dig into the snow, to just trench your track and look at layers. Um, so, so there's other ways to deal with that. Well, I, I certainly do quite a bit of digging too, <laughs> just getting myself unstuck. So yeah. You can definitely feel the yeah. layering of the snowpack that way as well. So there, there are quite a few um, folks that are kind of coming on the scene offering motorized avalanche education these days. Aries is just one provider of reputable motorized avalanche education curriculum. What are, what are some other um, providers out there that you know of and, and what are some main differences if, if somebody's looking to take a course on their sled or their snow bike? It's, it's definitely a need that is um, gradually being met, right? We've got for years and years and years, uh, motorized users are about 30% of the avalanche fatalities in the country. Um, and it's, it's just amazing to me that 99% of the classes being offered are ski-based. Um, and so it's, it's really good to see that people are finally stepping up to meet that need. Um, Airy... Airy uh, creates curriculum, but they're not actually the provider. So there are several um, providers who have signed on to use the Airy curriculum. And I honestly, I'm not working as closely with Airy now as I was a few years ago. So I'm just kind of aware of what's going on. Um, but uh, beyond Airy here at the Sierra Avalanche Center, we teach our own curriculum. Um, I know uh, a lot of the skills clinics that are are really accepted in the motorized community. I think, you know, your average skier or snowboarder may be a little bit resistant to taking lessons or hiring a guide, that kind of thing. But motorized users aren't. That's that's kind of a, a standard thing is to hire one of the pros for a, a multi-day riding clinic. And so quite a few of them uh, over the years have been doing some avalanche awareness, maybe on day one of their three-day riding clinic. But now they're beginning to realize that they can actually teach a full avalanche class. And so long as it incorporate, incorporates enough riding, which it should, any avalanche class should, um, they'll still get students. Right. So you get your riding in, you get your yayas, and, and you learn something throughout the three days as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even as an instructor, I can't tell you how exhausted I am at the end of a three-day class, how much riding I've done. Um and I think that's that's one of the keys to addressing or, or to reaching that community is to make sure there's still plenty of riding. It's it's the exact opposite of slogging around in the woods on skis and talking about avalanches. Right. And certainly not too much going on in the classroom, I would guess. 
You know, last year we did zero classroom time yeah. uh, and we, we didn't really bank on Zoom all that much. Um, it was just three field days, right. hands-on learning. Yeah, just some other some other folks that I've seen pop up, you know, Six Points, Avalanche Education, Eric yeah, Knopf yeah. and Radicke up right. in, in, uh, in Montana and Idaho, and then, um, you know, Avalanche One. Avalanche One, that's Mike Duffy's program. Yeah. yeah, I think he teaches mostly out of the Silverton Avalanche School for, for um, level one type classes. He does a lot of awareness stuff throughout the Midwest, has a really good reputation. Six points. Um, those guys seem to have a ton of experience, and I'm uh, really glad to see what what they're doing. They, um, that's a great program, from what I can tell. Yeah, yeah. It seems like there's some resistance earlier on in motorized avalanche education that these are just skiers kind of come trying to come to the motorized community and teach flail their way around right. on a snowmobile, right? And yeah. Like, seems like those days are kind of over. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that was fair to them. I, th I think a lot of ski, like I said, as a ski guide, I rode a sled, a work sled, and I thought I knew how to ride. And I think a lot of people still have that impression about themselves. Um, and, you know, you can change the brand of your jacket and then show up on your work sled and pretend to teach an avalanche class. Um, but I don't, I just don't think that's that much value. And so it's good that there are real riders now that are offering them. Right. And I, I kind of see that as like a deeper kind of cultural norm that has happened in the avalanche industry, you know, like for a long time, it seemed like people were trying to figure out why the avalanche community couldn't reach the motorized crowd quite so much. And it's really easy to say it from that side from, I mean, pretty much the avalanche industry was created by skiers, right? Right, skiers exactly. Snowboarders. Yeah. And so it's really easy to be in that crowd and look at the out crowd and say, why aren't you guys, why aren't you guys coming over? Right. Come on and have a beer with us. And, and so, um, it's nice to see that things are kind of mixing in a little bit nicer these days, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of that may have to do, um, a little bit with the, the pro rec split and some new guidelines. Um, where there's there's actually um, a lot of guide services, uh, motorized guide services that can now see a, a clear progression for their for their staff, and so they can actually send them off for professional level training that's on a snowmobile. Um, I don't think that was ever available when it was the old level one, level two, level three. I mean, for the most part, snowmobilers had to just strap on snowshoes anyhow. But I'm unaware of any level three, any professional level training for snowmobilers. Um, and so, yeah, the skiers held the keys to the kingdom. And um, that's definitely changing. It's, it's not past tense yet, but it's in the process of changing for the better. What about, can you speak at all to, to guide qualifications within the motorized industry? You know, like um, within the ski and snowboard world, we kind of have the... The AMGA or Heli US, it's kind of um, creating some standards for for ski guides. Um, how about in the motorized community? I've heard some whispers of that, uh, but I think that's still in its infancy. Um, so right now, land managers require almost nothing. Um, so the Forest Service, for when they issue a special use permit to a motorized operation, they want the guides to have uh, first aid, which is just first aid, not even like a woofer or a WMT or anything like that, but just first aid and very often just avalanche awareness. So um, that's a pretty low bar. 
Uh, and so there's a little bit of cart before the horse or chicken and egg kind of thing. Like if that's all that's required, then why would the employers send the staff off to professional level training? Um, and if it's not available, then why would the Forest Service, how could they require it, right? And so um, it, it just, you know, it took somebody to kind of break out of that, that eggshell and, uh, and finally start offering pro-level training for the motorized user. Uh, and now it seems to be taking off. Yeah, right on. Travis, let's talk a little bit about your work as a as an avalanche forecaster, professional observer for the Sierra Avalanche Center. Uh, what sorts of things are you looking for when you head out for a field day? Like, what does your field day look like? Uh, you know, that's that's evolved a little bit over time. When I first got hired, like I said, I, w- I had been a ski patroller, and so I was used to making morning obs, going out to the study plot, um, just doing the basic, like, you know, T-surf, T-20, that kind of thing. And so I got hired as an observer and I, thinking back at some of my observations, um, I, you know, I was basically just repeating that. And I'm not sure how useful that was to just go out to one uh, specific point in space and give that kind of information. So um, what I what I try to do now is give a more holistic report. Um, I'm not just digging a single pit in the snow and just kind of and submitting a graph of the pit and calling it a day. Um, and that's one of the things I really like about riding the sled is I, I just get to see so much, really get a good sense of what's going on. And then, uh, you know, I, I'll do multiple, uh, snowpack tests, uh, multiple slope cuts with the snowmobile, um, a, a variety of different things in as many different locations as I can travel. And then, uh, come home at night and usually it takes about an hour to submit a report, you know, go through my photos from the day and possibly edit a video or two, that kind of thing, and then type it all up. And, and even the audience in my mind has kind of changed when I, when I first got hired, I felt like as an observer, I was reporting to the forecasters. Uh, and so I used, um, you know, technical terminology. I felt like that's what I'd been trained to do. And, and, uh, now I, I feel like the audience has kind of shifted a little bit more to the public. The, the, over the years, the public is definitely reading the observations. It's not just for the forecasters anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much information out there for people to, to digest, right. Before they're going out for a day in the backcountry. And, and, um, well, do you have any advice for people that are feeling like there's kind of a bit of information overload? <laughs> I, I'm going through the same thing. I don't know if you come up with an answer, let me know. I, I um, you know, part of, part of my evening ritual is honestly to even start looking at the forums and see what other people have observed. And it's just, man, it's incredible. The rabbit holes you can go down. Um, the forecast product at this point throughout the U S is pretty well developed like it's it's a pretty impressive product. Uh, there's a lot of continuity between the different forecast centers. Um, so, you know, filtering out the noise, I think that's just that's something we're all struggling with in life in general, not just in relation to avalanches. But there's nothing wrong with just going straight to the final product and reading the forecast. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, I mean, we have such a great product out there. Why are people still going to die in avalanches? Well, we're still human. We're still out there to have fun, right? We're going to make mistakes. That's the way it is. Um, I think the the forecast product has improved a lot to the point that if if our user numbers are shoot, shooting through the roof the way we think they are, then the fatalities should have gone up, and yet they seem to be somewhat steady. 
Um, that's going to fluctuate year to year. But when you look at the, the overall pattern, we're doing okay. It's, it's sucks that people are still dying, but as far as the numbers go, statistically, it looks like the forecast product, the better education, possibly some of the better equipment, just general awareness is, um, is doing its job. What's one piece of advice you have for any motorized user heading out into the backcountry? you know, regardless of, of their level of avalanche education, just to kind of keep in mind as they're traveling through the terrain, um, in avalanche country. Uh, I only have one piece to give. That's, that's all I'm allowed. <laughs> Cause I, I could come up with a few, I think, um, you know, read the forecast and take it to heart. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how good that information is. Obviously forecasters make mistakes. Obviously we're basing it off of incomplete data. Um, the weather, the snowpack, the terrain, it's all complex. Um, so it's not, it's not perfect, but looking at accident reports, how often do we see, you know, all the clues written, written down in the report, but then the rider didn't actually either wasn't aware of them, didn't acknowledge them, any of that stuff. So for a lot of snowmobilers, I think they might feel like the, the average avalanche forecast in the U S is not written for them. There, there could be imagery of skiers and snowboarders. A lot of the observations are made from maybe more um, ski-centric locations, maybe not the zones that you're going to be riding in. Um, but the, the product is still your product, and it's something that uh, snowmobilers really need to own. I think um, I would like to see them get more involved in the avalanche community. I'd like to see them... Um, serving on the boards of directors at the Avalanche Centers. I'd like to see them attending the fundraisers. I'd like to see them attending the um, the snow and avalanche workshops every fall. I think the more the motorized community gets involved with the avalanche community, the more that forecast product is going to feel like it does apply to them. Mm. I was thinking if you were going to give one thing, it'd be to slap a couple stickers on your sled or your snow bike, right? And and you had, I think, a bit to do with developing a couple stickers that the Sierra Avalanche Center um, gives out, and I've seen them on your skis as well. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Cause yeah. I, I've slapped those on my sled, and it's a, it's a great reminder. You know, you turn the sled off and you pause for a minute, look down, kind of, what do you see? Yeah, so the, uh, the Sierra Avalanche Center does have two stickers, Um we call the, the avalanche risk management process here the daily flow. Um, and that was inspired by some of the, the research that happened in the early 90s with um, adventure athletes who were getting away with stuff, uh, you know, the so-called extreme sports. Um, and so uh, researchers started looking at them and trying to figure out what they were doing. And, and it turns out they were all following a process. They had their own process, whatever it was. Um, and so... The Avalanche Center developed a, a parallel process or a similar process. It's called the daily flow. And so it's very simple, um, you know, procedural approach to the day. It uh, encompasses the basics of risk management. Um, and then the second sticker that we have is our conditions and terrain alerts. And those are basically the old red flags, right? Um and so what we ask people to do, yeah, we, we give those stickers out all over the place at parties. Uh, they're at a lot of the shops around here. A lot of the um, power sports dealers have these stickers available for free. 
Um, some of the other Avalanche centers have adopted them now as well. I know the Sawtooth Avalanche Center is printing their own. Um, there's a couple of clubs that are printing them. Um, I've often been contacted to to mail them elsewhere, and I'm happy to do that. Um, and so they're they're just really easy to reference because they're in sticker format. They're right there on your sled. They're right there on your skis or your snowboard. Um, there's no reason to take a you know field book out of your pocket and beat your friends over the head with it. Um, it's it's a pretty simple thing to do. Yeah. And then it, it kind of, you know, we're creatures of habit. And the more we see that, the more we're going to recognize those things when we see them in the field, the more we're going to stick to that daily flow, whether it's that or some form of that, right. some form of a repeatable process exactly. to yeah. plan for the day and then manage our group in avalanche train. Thanks for putting that together. Travis, talk a little bit about your time down in South America. I don't know that you've been down there lately, but, um, what was that like and, and what was involved there and talk about some of the differences between, you know, maybe snow and avalanche world in North America versus South America. Sure. Uh, yeah, I spent, I, I believe I spent six seasons down there, uh, in Argentina. Um, and, uh, it has been a while now because Argentina's had a, a hard closure because of COVID. So I think it's been at least three seasons since I've been there. I definitely hope to go back. I stay in touch with friends down there. Um, they actually had a horrible season this last, this last winter, our summer. So I don't think I missed much. Um, I was, uh, working for a guide service there, teaching avalanche classes and guiding clients out of a ski resort. So we were doing kind of, um, um, lift access backcountry. And they were mostly North American clients. Um, the truth is the ski industry down, down there, uh, snow sports industry in general, because snowmobiling is starting to pick up down there as well, um, is, is heavily influenced by North America and by Europe. Uh, so a lot of the management, a lot of the professionals are getting their training either in the U.S. or in Europe and then bringing what they've learned back home to Chile and Argentina. Um Argentina, I think, really struggles. They've they've got uh, a pretty rough economy, and so it's. I think it might be impossible to get a snowmobile there. Honestly, I think it'd be really difficult. Um, and even skis, most people are you know smuggling from from Chile or something like that. So um, that's pretty limiting. I know that just recently, um, you know, some people have been uh, having efforts to bring used beacons into the country, um, and they're more and more awareness workshops and even formal level one and level two classes being offered now. Um, Chile is definitely, you know, their, their economy is a lot stronger. Um, I think that their, their snow sports industry reflects North America a lot more. There's now snowmobiling down there. Uh, there's, there's North Americans traveling down there to ride, but there's also locals buying sleds. Um, everything down there feels like it's maybe about 10 or 15 years behind uh, development in North America, but I think that gap is closing pretty quickly. And snow safety procedures within the ski resorts, you know, what, are, what is like a, they doing any mitigation? Yeah, uh, there are a few, I think, um, I can only speak from my personal experience. Mm -hmm. And so I was only working for a guide service that, that used one resort to access terrain. Uh, I did travel around and, and free skied at other resorts and um, have a lot of friends who have been working in, in the other resorts down there. Um, and so it's just like the rest of the avalanche industry there, the, the mitigation procedures have, have improved. Um, 
when I first went there, I think it was 2010 or 2011, and I was shocked at how much inbounds terrain was totally uncontrolled, and yet it was still open. Um, so steep avalanche terrain, and it was obviously steep avalanche terrain, you know, something that would be um, marquee terrain at a resort like Squaw or Snowbird or something like that, um, right under the chairlift, no mitigation, open to the public. Um, and so they did have a few kind of high profile accidents and they've, they've, um, started using explosives more. Uh, I know that there's, um, you know, there've been a few avalanchers down there. And, um, the, uh, the, another major North American influence, I think is a lot of ski patrollers who work both hemispheres, mm-hmm. but I have seen more and more locals, um, who are becoming a part of the community who are seeking out the education. So, Again, back in 2010, 2011, uh, a lot of the avalanche pros, I think, were generally North Americans, but now uh, they're more more locals getting the education and getting the jobs. Travis, just uh, got a listener question here. Um, you know, you've been in the industry for a long time. What advice would you give a younger avalanche professional that's moving up in their operational leadership structure, say, like at a ski resort? Um, I know from my experience, I could say that anytime I'm given an opportunity, I never think that I'm quite ready for it, right? And so there's some nerves around taking that next step. Um, And so advice for younger professionals that are kind of leading up and stepping into some bigger shoes? Sure. Uh, Yeah, 30 years into it, and I'm still learning stuff all the time, right? I think um, that's one thing the mountains are, they're always teaching, we just need to be listening. Um, and so, yeah, it is easy to feel undergunned or unprepared. Um, and I think keeping some modesty and humility is probably the number one thing. Um, I do think professionalism uh, can carry you through. And I think that professionalism on the snow might be a little bit different from professionalism in the office. And so that's one thing that happens to a lot of people um, over the years. If you've been working on the snow, eventually you end up with some administrative work. And uh, I'm not sure any of us like that, right? Like that's why we got into the snow sports industry to begin with, is we like being outside. Um, And so I think it's really important to just try to maintain a level of professionalism, even if you're stuck at your desk. So, you know, just because you're good at guiding clients or just because you're good at coaching people on a snowmobile or teaching an avalanche class or throwing bombs or whatever it is you're good at on the snow, doesn't mean that you're going to be good at it in the office. Um, But if you can maintain your professionalism and learn as you go, um, then I think that's the best way to move forward. Right. What's one thing that's changed in the last five years in your approach to managing avalanche hazard? Uh, safety margins for sure. Yeah, that's um, snowmobiling has taught me that. And uh, even when I'm traveling on skis or guiding clients in particular, I, I joke that everything I learned about ski guiding, I learned on a snowmobile. Um, and it all comes down to safety margins. Um, I feel... So many avalanche professionals say this. They look back at their career and talk about close calls and how they were getting lucky and didn't even realize it. I think so often that comes down to the margins and feeling like we can outsmart the avalanches and thread the needle, things like that. Um, and you can't do that on a snowmobile. You you can't tickle the dragon uh, or you can't tempt your friends to tickle the dragon. You need to 
set firm margins and keep them away. Um, and so that's something that, that I've really uh, come to appreciate on all modes of travel now. And when you talk about margins, are you talking just terrain, just terrain margins? Well, there's terrain margins, timing margins, mm-hmm. um, and they can change depending on conditions, depending on the people I'm traveling with, depending on my goals for the day. Um, you know, obviously, if I'm traveling alone on skis, I, I never do it on a sled, but on skis, if I'm traveling alone, my, my margins are very wide. I stay far from the avalanche problem. Um, but then on the sled, uh, you know, if, if I've got clients, if I've got students, those margins need to be similarly wide because I don't know what they're going to do. I, I can pretend that I have control over them. Um, but again, they might dart off and, and roost up a slope that I just never even expected them to. So I need to keep them far enough away from that to resist the temptation to begin with. Sure. Right. Uh, care to share a story when your margins weren't wide enough? Yeah, uh, very recently, to be honest. Um, it was maybe two or three years ago, I remember, we were um, we were traveling on a persistent slab day, and this was not a work day for me. I was, I was out with friends for fun, and I will admit that I, uh, I try to avoid the expert halo on my days off. It's something I really resist, and so... I probably was not um, being direct enough with my partners. We were uh, riding some some pretty fun trees that were relatively not exposed. Um, turned a corner, and this was a terrain feature that that I was very familiar with, and I knew where there was a steep little pocket to avoid. Um, and again, persistent slab problem. Maybe our margins weren't wide enough. Like if, if you're going to get onto the slope where you have to avoid a specific pocket on a persistent slab day, that's probably, um, getting a little too, too close to things. But, uh, we were trying to get up and over into another drainage. And so I took a, a what I considered to be a safe route and I didn't stop to talk about it with my friends. Um, I made the assumption that they knew. And then, uh, the next guy up, I, I made the pass um, along the safe route. And then the next guy up, of course, just went maybe 20 feet offline. And that was um, that scared me. But all he did was get stuck. So we got lucky there. Um, but as I was watching him, I, you know, I called on the radio to, to my other partners and said, hey, you know, don't please don't help him. He's not in a good spot. Let him get out of this on his own. Uh, and that's that's pretty important for snowmobilers, I think, to recognize. That's one thing a lot of people do is they rush in and try to help their friend get unstuck. And that's great when they're in the flats or they're not exposed. But if they're anywhere near avalanche terrain, just let them deal with it on their own. Um, and so they did. They knew that. These are savvy part- partners. But then I hear a couple of snow bikers approach, you know, and they're recognizable. You hear the four-stroke kind of wrapping along through the, through the trees. And um, they can side hill steeper terrain than a sled can, um, or at least they think they can. And so that's what they try to do. And they ended up uh, remote triggering an eight foot crown that broke within feet of where my friend was stuck. Um, and that was a real eye opener. And I blame it on myself. I'm not blaming it on the snow bikers, right? I'm blaming it on myself for not being directive enough with my friends because for me, it was a day off. Wow. Well, I mean, it's, it's tough sometimes, like you said, you didn't want to kind of have that expert halo and, and sometimes you just don't want to lead 
right? Exactly. You, you don't want to be in charge. If, if you're used to being in charge all the time and used to digging in the snow all the time, your days off should be just that, your days off. Exactly. And sometimes you don't want to take on that role. And so that can be, that can be tough. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's when maybe I, on my days off, I should just go to the desert and ride the dirt bike instead, but it's hard to resist when the snow is good. Yeah. Well, it's what you love to do. Exactly. Yep. Any other topics that you've been chewing on lately, Travis, that, that you want to kind of air out to the community there? Uh, well, I've, I've been enjoying listening to your show. Uh, and I think it's really, um, it's a great service you're offering to all of us. I think my guess is that the majority of your listeners are human powered. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's something that's been going on or, or bugging me in the industry for a while. Right. We, we think of the avalanche industry as a subset of the ski industry. And I think it's time for us to get over that. I think it's time for us to realize that it's a snow sports industry and the avalanche industry is a subset of that. Um, and I, I do think that's slowly happening, but, um, I, th I think that, you know, in these in these times when we're talking about inclusivity and and um, other social issues, um, snowmobilers, they're you know they're, it's by choice. It's a, it's a sport. It's just recreation. Let's not take it all too seriously, um, as we are some other things in society right now. But at the same time, in our own little uh, world of of the avalanche industry, let's try to reach out and include more people. Yeah, absolutely. And there's enough. Enough differences out there that people are fighting over. Let's let's keep it out of the backcountry. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's not what we're going there for. Right. Well, Travis, I really appreciate you sitting down tonight, and and uh, it's great to catch up with you. And hope to see you out in the snow soon. Yeah, let's go roost. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for having me. I truly hope you enjoyed that conversation with Travis Feist. I know I did. Music on today's episode is by Age Diamante. You can check him out on Instagram at Age Diamante. That's A G E D I A M A N T E. Check out more of his tracks there. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You the man T. Check out more of his work at his website, triple dub dot mike t that's m-i-k-e-t-e-a dot com you can give us a follow on the socials we are at the avalanche hour podcast on facebook and instagram please subscribe rate and review the show on whatever podcast platform you may listen to it on we are now on amazon podcasts if if that's your thing if you're into the amazon empire check us out on amazon podcasts don't forget to tell a friend about the show. Again, send any feedback to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to tune in to our next episode on January 15th. Wesley Gregg will be interviewing Judson Wright. So we're looking forward to hearing that interview from Wes Gregg. If you've still got some money kicking around for donations this year after you've donated to your local Avalanche Center, consider donating to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You can find a donate button on our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Be nice to one another.
catch you on the flip.